0: And welcome to the 27th episode of Catch Up on Kids' Mental Health. I'm Janet Morrison. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Barbara Fidler, who's a clinical psychologist with over 35 years of experience. A large part of her practice is working with parents and children during separation and divorce. She provides a range of services, including therapy with couples and families, consultations, family mediation, and parenting coordination. She's also an author and provides training to mental health professionals, lawyers, and judges. Welcome, Dr. Fiddler.
1: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I guess I'd I'd like to start by asking you about your role as a mediator. What does that involve? Okay,
1: well, um, there are different types of mediation and there are different models of mediation or ways people conduct mediation. So for the most part, I work with separating and divorcing parents, and sometimes their children, to address their post-separation parenting arrangements. So there are different ways families might come in to see me, or for different reasons. Sometimes they come because they're looking to develop a parenting plan that's... uh, the document, the terms, the protocols that guide how they're going to conduct themselves in and around anything related to parenting. And we may develop a plan from scratch, we may revise an existing plan, or we may work on single issues that arise uh, that they face maybe arising out of the implementation of that plan. A big part of the work is to facilitate a conversation between the parents that allows them to consider various options and make informed decisions. There's a strong and a large part of the process that's devoted to education to the extent the parents want that. And for example, there might be, there are often situations where we assist, mediators will assist parents to have the conversation with their children about the separation and how to talk to their kids about the separation.
0: Are sometimes, are parents mandated by judges to come and see you or this is completely voluntary?
1: Mediation is a voluntary process. That doesn't mean that judges don't encourage it or family law lawyers don't encourage it. In fact, There are amendments to the Divorce Act and the the federal legislation and the provincial legislation relating to divorce amendments that came into effect in 2021. And these amendments include that lawyers are to encourage alternative dispute resolution, including mediation. So uh, there is more of a a push that way, I guess, with the expectation from what lawyers are to do, and but ultimately, it is a voluntary process. It's a process that is of in, is involves self determination, and it's to be a safe process.
0: What about children? Do children have a say at all in this process? Are they anywhere in the room? Well,
1: they may be literally in the room Uh, at times. They may, they're certainly figuratively in the room because it's all about the best interest of the children. We're talking about parenting plans. So not all mediators uh, would have the skills to interview children because there are some mediators who are lawyers. There are some mediators that are mental health professionals that don't have the skills in interviewing children. And there are some mediators who are neither a lawyer or a mental health professional. Um so, you know, lots of different people can hang out a shingle and that may be something that parents want to look into, you know, is the mediator certified? What's the training that they've gone on, you know, had? So, as far as children are concerned, I cuz I'm a child psychologist, I do have the training and skills to interview children and it's not uncommon for me to interview or involve Older, well, not the very youngest of the children. So there's something called child-inclusive mediation, which actually includes the children being seen, met, and then to the extent possible, feeding back the information that children provide the mediator to the parents in a way that's an appropriate way, and then that can often help parents to settle when they hear the voice of their child. There is an expectation in the law that children, the voice of the child, that is their views and preferences, is one factor in the best interest test. And on top of that, we have the UN Convention on the Rights of Children that require that Canada is a signatory to that require that all children have the right to be heard in some way or other in any of these proceedings, if their parents are separated in divorce or if there is some sort of situation involving a divorce or separation.
0: Is there an age
1: range? Well, in terms, sure. In terms of when children can be interviewed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean you can get to know a child through play and through other means but typically, we're not seeing children in mediation. There may be other processes that we participate in as mental health professionals where we see very young children. But in mediation, I would say like the lower age might be eight-ish. And for teenagers, it's very common for me to see them and interview them. But there is an expectation that children have the right to not only have their voice, but be given information. And that's, they in one way or other, it might be through mediation, it might be through any other number of processes that parents can involve themselves in if they don't participate in mediation.
0: Now, is there some reluctance on the part of children to voice a preference or to voice their views because they're concerned about the feelings of one parent or another? Absolutely. So
1: there's risks and benefits to involving children. So we don't force children. So if a child doesn't want to be involved, that's fine. It's their right to say yes or no. Parents often will disagree about whether the child should be seen. Uh, You know, it takes it's a skill. How do you give the Are the parents ready to hear the, the voice of the child? So there's an assessment to some extent of their readiness because there could be reprisals, for example, because they they are concerned about a parent's reaction or hurting a parent's feelings or maybe even more serious than that, considerable strong reactions, negative reactions from parents that could be harmful to a child. So all these things have to be taken into account. The voice of the child is also, we can look at it if I may from not the individual child talking about their views and preferences about where they live and how much time they spend with the parent but what I want to refer to as the collective voice of the child what else do children say about separation and divorce well there's never been a child that I've met that hasn't said they want their parents to get along so You know, you can impart that to parents, whether you see the children or not. There's ways to feedback information to parents that doesn't kind of nail the child. You can talk about themes, you can... So there's a lot of other information besides the views and preferences in the legal sense. What is, you know, what do the children want in terms of where they live and how much time they spend with each parent? Because that can really put a burden on a child, but there is quite a bit of research on voice of the child and children do from on the basis of the research as i understand it they they know that they're not the ones who decides and makes these decisions and they appreciate the opportunity to be involved and they distinguish between sharing their views and references and voice and being the decision maker and that it's not likely any more harmful than whatever else they're exposed to so it's not going to be the thing to you know do the damage if there's damage if there are risk factors for that child in that family environment they're there anyway
0: right right so in terms of the process being binding or not is mediation binding on the on the parents? Is that is that a part of what they volunteer for? They can consent to a process of
1: mediation or arbitration or arbitration that would be a binding process with subject to appeal in various other uh, ways and terms. But mediation on its own is not binding until it becomes an agreement that would be executed like a contract. So mediators would not, should not, and by standards of practice and guidelines, would not be able to execute the signing of agreements in their office. They would develop a, in the end, I guess, a final agreement subject to the parents getting independent legal advice, which they're strongly advised to do. They don't have to, but it's much. it's the chance of the agreement not not being enforceable is more likely if they didn't have independent legal advice. So then they would, through their lawyers, execute the agreement. So no, it's not binding. But once it's agreed to, it, you know, even in the office and uh, it it could be considered an agreement, but typically only after it's signed and executed in the proper way.
0: Right. Okay. And earlier, you were alluded to one of your roles being to help parents develop a parenting plan. Can you talk a little bit about what's involved in that?
1: When parents come for mediation, if you are a certified or registered or a mediator, you are required per your standards of practice to screen for suitability of mediation, to screen for specifically power imbalances and family violence. So when people come into mediation, before we get to the mediation proper, we have to screen. And you have to do, in order to do that properly, you must see the parents individually. Once they've gone through the screening, and there may be other reasons that it's not suitable. Once they've gone through this screening and, and they've been accepted, then you would meet to develop an agenda of items, like what are they coming for? Is it a The whole thing, the parenting plan from the ground up. Is it a partial plan? Is it tweaking of an existing plan? Has it been several years and they need to make changes? So every situation is a little different. And you would develop an agenda. And mediation is a process of negotiation and making concessions and getting information, hearing from the mediator about options, discussing the the ins and outs and pros and cons of different options, what do other people do, it's so important to parents to make informed decisions. And remember, it's a very emotional time. And so parents aren't necessarily always properly informed. And so I like to, you know, really focus on that. And the parenting plan is really everything that relates to parenting arrangements. So it would include the following things like, rules of engagement between the parents, communication protocols, the parenting time. So now with the new legislation I mentioned before we refer to what was known in the legislation as access or visitation is called parenting time. Now truthfully we've been calling it parenting time for 20 plus years but the legislation finally has caught up to us thank goodness. And so we have the terms parenting time and parental responsibility the latter being for decision making for being the major decisions that affect children's lives where they go to school major educational decisions major medical or health decisions decisions related to religion and then there's all the day to day decisions and there's many of those and so the parenting plan will that is the most comprehensive plan Will include parenting time, holiday time. Who does the driving? The time of the transitions, ex- uh, extracurricular activities. How vacation periods are picked? Like how do you pick your dates? Protocols, protocols, protocols for any and all that might be might uh, cause conflict. Because the whole purpose of the parenting plan, and perhaps maybe better to have said this at the beginning, there are two primary principles or objectives of the parenting plan. In my view, one is to minimize parental conflict and protect children from parental conflict. And the other is to provide children with a meaningful relationship with both parents, wherever possible. So we're looking at how decisions will be made, how major decisions will be made, what happens if the parents can't make those decisions together? Will one parent make the decision? What will the is there another method of uh, for future dispute resolution? What about passports? What about notice about traveling, consent for travel? All of that, extracurricular activities, all of that.
0: The more specific the plan, the less opportunity for misunderstanding and conflict?
1: Absolutely. So uh, that's exactly
0: it. So, you know, many years ago,
1: like you've mentioned, I've been practicing for A long time, you know, we used to see orders from the court that said reasonable access and, you know, shared decision making or, and, you know, this caused a lot of conflict for parents that are engaged in more conflict, which is a minority of all the parents, but it's still a large number of people. And it's the the ones that we often see is the ones who have more conflict. So the more conflict, the more specificity in the plan to address ambiguities loopholes the parents can always vary the agreement by mutual agreement so i mean the more detail of course the less spontaneity and parents will object to that and flexibility but you can always do that if you agree this is like becomes the default if you can't agree So there's a lot of parenting plans people had. I mean, we are better now. I mean, you don't see that kind of order anymore. You don't see that kind of mediated agreement that's loosey-goosey. But there's lots of things that come up that are common that cause conflict. And in fact, parents tend to argue more about the day-to-day decisions, how the children are disciplined, what they eat. Who goes to the, you know, the school events, how they go to the school event, who gets to go on the, you know, the field trips, extracurricular activities, when the children communicate with their parents by telephone or, you know, parent, how they're parented. So parents tend to argue more about the day to day decisions, which in the end, they may not have control over because that's that's just life. Then they argue about the major issues, like whether a child has surgery or, but parents do argue about that. Of course, we have our fair share of arguments about vaccination and other, you know, topics like that. So we want to try and make that address, customize the parenting plan for the family based on what they need. With a view to what should be in a parenting plan generally. And so there are categories of things With the new legislation, the court expects parents to come to, if you have to go to court, which hopefully you don't, but if you do, you have to come with your proposed parenting plan. And that's what they call it now.
0: I see. In your experience, is there a part of the process or a time during this process of separation and divorce that is more difficult than others for children? Is it early on? Is it at the finalization when they're not going to be fantasizing that their parents are getting back together again? No,
1: that's a really good question. I think, you know, if you're asking about the impact on the kids or the impact on the parents.
0: I'm asking about the children.
1: But that depends on the impact on the parents, right? Yes, of (laughs) course. So so we don't – I can't say that it's harder at this age or that age or, you know, where – like, is the child, you know, three at the point of separation – Is the child 14 at the point of the separation when it starts? And then as the separation progresses, because it is a process and it does take some time. Every age and stage will have its own impacts, short and long term. And it will depend on many factors. So certainly, you know, so for example, very young children, you might see changes in their behavior, what we would call regressive behaviors, like changes in their toileting or sleeping or how they eat. Whereas kids get older, you see different kinds of behaviors. You may, they may feel in a loyalty bind. They may be upset about having to move various things. And teenagers then, you know, will have impacts because maybe they don't want to move back and forth. Maybe they don't, they want to stay in the neighborhood where their friends are. So it's really going to depend on the sort of developmental stage the child's at. And in each of those stages, there are different accomplishments or different milestones. And so it's going to interface with that as well as the child, him or herself or their self in terms of their, if they have special needs, what their personality is like, who they are, you know, how resilient they are, how vulnerable they are it's going to depend on the amount of conflict the child was prior to the separation and during the separation and
0: after the separation can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of how parents can be helpful to their children in in terms of lessening the their stress and distress and i think conflict is obviously right i think you were beginning to to talk to right. talk about would you say more about that please sure one way to look at that is to think about different models of co-parenting.
1: Cooperative co-parenting, there's conflictual co-parenting, and there's disengaged co-parenting. So parents are co-parents, regardless of how they do it, right? And it's a way of looking at it in the language. So some parents think co-parenting means they share them 50-50 or you know, half time, but that's not what co-parenting means. Okay, you know, if you have the child 10% of the time, 90% of the time, you're still co-parents. So you're going to have to so I talk to parents this way you're, you 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 can choose to be a good co-parents or bad co-parents. And there are different models of co-parenting. And that's really going to impact children's adjustment. So co-parenting, it's an additive additive co-parenting is best for kids. However, they can do really well with a disengaged kind of model of co-parenting. That's kind of what we were talking about before with a very detailed parenting plan where everyone knows where everyone's supposed to be when there's not a lot of wiggle room. And then there's the conflictual co-parenting that we know is really bad for kids. So it's much better to go with a disengaged model, of co-parenting, a detailed parenting plan And it's possible once you become disengaged because it's a process. You know, at the beginning of separation, it's difficult. It should start to ease up and get easier as you move through all the changes. It's possible that you get to a place of cooperative co-parenting from a place of disengagement. And it's more possible to achieve that than from a place of conflict, right? So you get some distance and disengagement and then maybe you can get to the more cooperative. But if you don't, you can still have a business-like uh, relationship with your co-parent and do lots of things to protect the ch- children from your conflict.
0: And I'm assuming that, in terms of resilience, that the the less conflicts, the greater resilience for for children moving forward. Right.
1: I think that's true to a large extent. It's it's also important to consider that we're not born resilient, and in fact, some adversity helps with the development of of uh, resilience. And resilience is really all about engagement. So it's the interface between someone else or a community that help people become resilient. You don't sort of become resilient on your own. You become resilient through interaction with others and learning how to face adversity. So people who are very well accomplished, in fact, there's interesting research on that, you know, famous people, people who have had books written about them, mathematicians, philosophers, artists, politicians, whomever, most of them have had considerable adversity. So resilience is comes out of some adversity, but there's like a tipping point. So, you know, there's that sweet spot. If it's there's too much stress, there's too much toxicity, there's too much adversity, it's going to be hard to be resilient. If there's no adversity, then you won't develop any skills to really learn how to cope with adversity. So, you know, it's just the right amount will help you develop it. And yes, conflict, parental conflict is one of the single most important factors in understanding how children fare as a result of their
0: parents' separation. Do children who are experiencing a lot of conflict within their parents, do you recommend that they have psychotherapy? Do you recommend that they uh, join some kind of a group where they can share their distress? Yes, it can be very helpful. I mean, to a point,
1: you know, sometimes we have the parents I get the cheerleaders and advocates. And so, uh, you know, whether it's through family, friends, and sometimes through therapists. So I do think it's important for parents to get information, and to even go for a consultation, you know, about not only therapy for themselves to help them through the separation. Yes, that can be really important. But more also about you know what do kids need? What what does the research say about the impact of separation, and divorce? What is a parenting plan? All the things we're talking about today and more. There's um, so much information, and we'll pro- you'll provide some resources. I understand on your website where people can get information about parenting plans, and and the parents need to inform themselves they, it's not usually good enough to say, well, my friend did this or, you know, that, you know, (laughs) so this is what I'm going to do. It's an emotional time for parents. And they're not always, frankly, thinking clearly. And it's very understandable. They're going through so many changes. You know, they may have been left. They may not want the separation, even if they wanted it. It certainly costs more to run two homes than one there's economic changes, there may be moves, there may be changes in work. There's so many changes, there may be changes in neighbourhoods, friends, etc, etc. So there's a lot to cope with. And sometimes it can get worse before it gets better. But most families and children do well. After about one to two years of separation, we do see the majority that is about 80% who fare well. Divorce is a risk factor, um, where Kids are having adjustment problems, but there's a lot parents can do to mitigate those risks.
0: Well, I was going to ask you, but I think you've answered that question. So the long-term outcomes of divorce look very positive, that about eight in 80% of the cases, the parents and the children recover, resume their lives, move forward.
1: Yes, I think that's, I mean, that's how I understand the research. I mean, and remember, there are different things that happen along the life cycle of that. So, you know, new partners can come into play. So this might be a trigger to have a setback. You know, there's often a few steps forward and a step back in the nature of good change. And so, yes, uh, most do well. And unfortunately, we have some, it's not, but I think the message is it's not necessarily the divorce that created those, that problem for the 20%. Because I understand. We can't know, you can't, it's actually more about the conflict and how the divorce is um, occurring, the process, than the fact of the divorce, because we know kids in non-divorce families, where there's a lot of conflict, are doing worse than kids in divorce families where there's low conflict. So it's more what I would call process variables or what's happening, than how the parents are behaving, how they're managing their disputes, how are they developing their parenting plan. And how much energy they have left over to actually address their children's needs. Absolutely. I mean, you've hit the nail. Parents get so consumed with their own hurt and needs, and this is where it's important to have therapy or be in a group or, you know, listen to podcasts or, you know, incredible amount of information, probably too much on the internet, (laughs) and one has to be careful, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's why going to a consultant... You don't even have to go to a mediator, but even going to a consultant for one session to kind of get yourself organized to see, well, what are the decisions I have to make? And what might be the best route for me to achieve those tasks and make those decisions and then go about deciding how to you're going to you know, get the help you need to the extent that you need the help? And you'll see from the resources that I can provide that there are templates and guides and all kinds of very useful information. Parents can do a lot of this themselves. But I think that parents need to understand that, you know, as much as they think they know the right answer, I think this goes for everyone frankly you know, they could be wrong. And they, well, eventually they need to feel comfortable with the decisions they made and and trust their instincts to, I think they also
0: need to be informed and educated. Thank you. I, I have one, one last question for you. And that's, what do you think about parents informing teachers, the children's teachers about the fact that they're going through separation and divorce? Is that something that's helpful or is that, should that be private?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Like some parents will not want to tell teachers they don't want. They think then the teacher will, you know, see the children through a certain eye. They'll become stigmatized. Maybe there's other privacy reasons. I think, you know, look, there's no one right answer for questions. I think it's about what I think is important is considering what your question is and what, you know, should I tell the teacher or not, for example. Think about it. Think about the pros. Think about the cons. Keep your mind open to any possibility. Where I land, depending, I mean, I could have circumstances where I'd say, no, it's not a good idea. But generally, where I land is, I think it is a good idea. I mean, divorce is extremely common. It's about half the divorcing the marriage population, about 40% in Canada. So it's a lot of people. It is very few schools and classrooms that don't have more than one family divorce. You do see it kind of in some neighborhoods, you see it less. It's interesting, but generally it's certainly not, I don't think the same stigma as it used to be certainly when probably we were kids. And um, I think it's important to tell teachers, you can ask them if it's okay. If you as a parent check in with the teacher periodically Is the teacher okay with that? Or is the teacher going to be annoyed by that? Ask them to let both parents know, not just one parent, both parents know if there's any noticeable changes in the children, because that's what you're going to look for. You're going to see changes at the beginning, but do those changes, those negative changes last? You know, do they persist? Because all of a sudden we had an A student and now the student's failing. The student's putting their head down, you know, on the desk and falling asleep. The student's getting bullied or bullying. So changes that occurred. So that's one of the markers. You're going to look for changes. So you can ask the parent to keep an eye out for the child. Um, There are school counselors in some schools, probably not as many as there ought to be, in my opinion, but there are school counselors that are used to this, that the child can have someone to talk to at the school. Or maybe the child does need therapy also. So yes, I think it's generally a good idea to give the teachers a heads
0: up. Okay, well, thank you very much for this. That's a lot of information, a lot of important information for parents and for teachers. And I'm very grateful for your time today. Oh, thank it's you. my pleasure.
1: I hope it was helpful. Thank very you very much.
0: much. So, thank all you. right, take care. We certainly chose the right person to invite to talk to us about separation and divorce. Dr. Fiddler has such enormous experience uh, over the the whole topic in terms of both her mediation and her work as a clinical psychologist in addition to her conversation with me she's also given us a number of resources which will be up on the website for parents and teachers to take a look at i think overall dr fiddler's message was a very positive one that separation and divorce although a crisis need not be a negative event long-term for parents or for their children see you next time i'm janet morrison please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts